<clears throat> Welcome to the Bridge Podcast. I'm your host, John Lamberton. We are on episode 53, and I'm joined today by Casey Cangelosi. Casey is a composer, percussionist, marimbaist uh, educator over at James Madison University, uh, and one of the hosts of the Percussion Podcast, App Percussion Podcast, and author of uh, the delightfully slim but never-ending um, <laughs> technical timing, a method for metronome and snare drum. Uh, Casey, thanks for joining me. Hey, John, thank you. And thanks for the cool podcast. I'm, I've been listening and I'm going to keep listening. It's really good. That's uh, wonderful to hear. Uh, so you probably know I, I start these interviews off basically just with the icebreaker of asking if you have coffee preferences. I see you have a thermos, but uh, can you tell us who you really are via your coffee preferences? <laughs> I think, yeah, my answer is probably not too interesting. I feel like I'm probably a quantity over quality kind of person and coffee is uh, is great. And I think any coffee is great. Cheap coffee is great and nice coffee is great. And that's easy for me because that means I just get a drink and buy cheap coffee. I think um, one thing I'll tell you, I think coffee is really good um, as a uh, analogy to explain some of the weird stuff you listen to. <laughs> and, I, and I listen to too. I mean, a lot of times, of course, I'm a teacher, like you mentioned. And um, sometimes if you're trying to introduce something new, like, like say some, I've heard you mentioned some non-caro on the show before. If you're trying to introduce something like that, and you have a, a young student who maybe is kind of like, what, what, what's the deal here? It's, then of course you get into a conversation about acquired tastes. And I think coffee is a really good analogy for like a acquired taste, you know, like, yeah, of course, you probably don't like black coffee right away. Mm -hmm. But most coffee drinkers who've been drinking it a long time, they, you know, learn to like black coffee. And there's a, it's kind of like a heavier like to an acquired taste than a something you like right away, you know? Totally. Yeah. I guess non-caro is kind of the musical coffee and it's challengingness versus you know like musical sugar uh exactly at the end of the day it's not that rewarding uh, <laughs> yeah um it, when you say quantity i'm curious what you mean and i i used to be a big quality guy um i worked in the coffee industry for a while but i am very much a quantity guy now uh, i think it just means i've got my maxwell house and like that's fine you know or i've got my folgers and um i've also i also think i've encountered enough coffee snobs in my life that i just kind of go like ooh, I, uh, there's a certain <laughs> pride to drinking like cheap bad coffee and mm -hmm. and liking it and um it's sort of like the the guy on uh, pulp fiction you know they say how do you the tough guy comes to the house and um you know from the mafia and they're like um you know how do you like your coffee and he just says lots of cream lots of sugar it's like he's not a you know he's not trying to be tough he's not trying to you know say well i only like the hardest strongest black coffee it's like mm -hmm. no it sort of feels like that do you feel like um you know like i know that you're very interested in like your internal clock do you feel like it's modulated at all by your coffee consumption does it make it more accurate more uh, enthusiastic yeah, does it make right. you rush time-wise? I think, um, uh, you know, I, I've just heard friends, um, and actually just recently, like some friends and, and colleagues who've said um, uh, quitting coffee was a great thing, and they had no idea how much it was affecting them until they quit. And I've also heard people say, the best thing about quitting coffee is getting back on coffee. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth quitting just to get back on um, so I don't know. I've, I've drank it for such a long time. It, it would be really interesting to see. Yeah. Like, 
do I no longer wake up at 3 a.m., you know, and like kind of lay awake for a while? Like if I quit coffee, would that go away? You know, and it, it sounds like from what people say, the answer is it probably would, you know. Interesting. I, so. I took a few days off, uh, you know, like two months ago, and it was it was uh, something I will never do again. But uh, yeah. Uh, so to, I guess, get into like some percussion stuff, you know, I'm, we're both composers. Um, I'm a guitarist, but you know, uh, as a percussionist, you're also like quite, you have quite the facility on marimba, which is you know still a percussion instrument. And so, um, there's like this question about, you know, what, like, what exactly is percussion that I think I have, I know a basic answer of, but like to just be a little philosophical about it, uh, you know, on one level, it's about using some sort of implement to excite a sound. Um, so, you know, one side is that, you know, using a tool, but then another is like kind of the indeterminacy of pitch. And I'm curious how you think about it or how you sort of define it and how those interact. Yeah, it's a cool question. And it's, uh, yeah, something, of course, students are very curious about, you know, like you go talk to some, some really young students, you know, the elementary school class or something, and they just want to know, like, so how many percussion instruments are there? And if a, if a piano is hitting strings, well, isn't it a percussion instrument? And how come the percussionists are playing um, air horns in the background? That's not percussion. They're not percussing. Why don't they give those to the woodwinds? That's, it's, it's wind related. You know, it's like mm -hmm. those are all like really, really fair points. So I, I think when you when you get into like the professional meaning of a percussionist, it, it probably has more to do with their role, you mm -hmm. know, and like their role in the ensemble and like their job. And uh, I teach percussion literature class here and something we explore just kind of common thread through the whole class is like, yeah, how do we kind of get to the stage we're in now? And one of those things, like speaking of an air horn, it's like, yeah, in like the silent film era, <laughs> we percussionists had a little briefcase they brought around with all their sound effects. So like sound effects became a big part of it. And, and, and so it just, kind of defined our role or at least part of our role because a, a lot of instruments like uh like you mentioned marimba or, or snare drum or say drum set i mean it takes a lot of refinement and it's not uncommon nowadays at all to find someone who is just a drum set specialist right like mm -hmm. most drummers on the planet that we know of that's what they do and it's becoming more and more common to find someone who's just a marimbaist um, and of course, jazz vibraphonist has uh, been around, I think, even longer and is, is more common. So it's like per percussion is getting more and more specialized as we go along, you know, like we would never impose that um, level of knowledge and just say like, oh, I'm a string specialist. I play harp, violin cello guitar like like all of those have already been defined and really carved out through history as their own specialty and um percussion is still still working on that and of course i don't think every percussion instrument like i don't think they'll ever be triangle specialists you know i don't think they'll be <laughs> mm -hmm. triangle virtuosos i mean if anything that's kind of an internet meme and a joke but um i think the role of a percussionist you know someone who yes they can play triangle yes they can play snare drum they can play a little drum set they can play a little vibes that's kind of um yeah like still still taking shape and taking form and some people will say yep i am a marimbist and someone else will say i'm a i'm a steel pan soloist and then someone else will say i'm a percussionist and i, I think generally that means they they fill that role you know they can 
do uh, something on everything. Gotcha. Um, my sense of percussionists is like a lot of them are kind of like this different breed. Well, where like you know you might see somebody who's like on a drum line who's like not that enthusiastic about music even, but like somehow I'm just like you're fluently like fluidly doing these rhythms that most guitarists would just like you know kind of not be able to handle for some reason. And I'm curious like is this like are you guys eating something different or like uh, <laughs> uh, you know similarly like the fact that you're so fluid on marimba while also being you know capable on drum set it's like why are what, what are guitarists missing that percussionists have i think i of course don't know for sure but it, it seems to me that because our our first instrument is usually snare drum you know in middle school you get your little kit and you get your drum pad and you get your little bell kit and and two sticks a stick in each hand is is usually the thing we we have to do the most and for the longest and that's usually like the traditional centerpiece and it's uh it's not melodic so you you kind of have to really truly be able to read rhythm and i i say truly because um like if you ever try to teach <laughs> a melody to another instrumentalist it, you'll find they as soon as they learn the melody, they don't really have to think about rhythm anymore. Mm. And that goes for us too, you know, like, like when, when you sing a melody, you know, just sing like any, anything that pops into your head, uh, you don't really have to think hard about the rhythm. Let, like the, the pitches imply rhythm, but the rhythm doesn't really infer pitch. Um, mm. It seems to only go one way. And I experienced this uh, teaching at my, my last university, I taught the, um, uh, the remedial theory course and a lot of the students who were in there is because they had trouble with rhythm. So I remember I had a group of singers once and we would work on reading melodies. And as soon as they heard it a couple times, they had it. But when we took pitch totally out of it, it forced them to really actually read the, the rhythm. Interesting. Okay. You know, so, so my only guess is that we started that way. So maybe, you know, our progression, it's not like we can really add on more notes. There are no notes. It's just, it's monotone, mono uh, pitch. It's one pitch, it's snare drum. <laughs> so I guess the next thing you explore is like, well, more rhythm and more complex rhythm and just keep adding it on, I suppose. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, uh, I mean, you know, I mentioned your technical timing book and, um, it's funny because like I, I guess like I still wish that I was able to apply it more um, as a guitarist, but like uh, seeing the way that you do it, it's like it's cool because there's you know, this duet element of the metronome and the, the snare drum. Is this something that you've seen other people apply to non-percussion instruments? Yeah, sure. Um, oh, yeah. Let's see. To non-percussion instruments. Um, not really. Uh, I've certainly seen the idea done before you know like my teacher used to have us you know play this xylophone excerpt but now treat the metronome click like it's the offbeat mm -hmm. and now treat it like it's the last group of the 16th group of four you know mm -hmm. and like, like shift the metronome around so yeah it's certainly not an idea of my invention um but yeah i've, I've seen it used to to help students work on timing and I, the idea with the book was to kind of put it through like a, a, a method that would be progressive and have something of uh, some creative variation that you can put into it. I, I've only seen a couple people, you know, just like here, here or there online, uh, a, a pianist friend of mine, 
she she did something what did she do i think she she like arpeggiated the longer notes and then hmm. the shorter notes she subtracted uh, just just did it kind of in one place so it certainly it certainly seems possible but it's like the nice thing about a, a good method book is like you don't have to take time thinking like super creatively how to use it you can just like hey here it is and i can i can dive right in and get started it, it would be cool to find a way to you know not just have you chunk away on one note you know mm -hmm. Uh, plucking away on the, those rhythms only you know uh one of my favorite guitarists is this guy ben monder i'm not sure if you're familiar with this playing but uh he's like this very exhaustive player in terms of his approach and like he'll take four note chords and sort of you know four factorials 24 so it's like automatically you have 24 variations of four notes and uh -huh. um you know five factorials like immediately overwhelming but i've like been very attracted to this like exhaustive approach and um you know, there's something where it's like, it seems like you were able to like generate so much from this basic idea of like moving the partial around. And so I'm curious how you like went about sort of um, exhausting all these possibilities. Um, you know, like, was it mathematical in nature? Or did you just kind of say now this one? Or how'd that go about? Right. Uh, the second one is how it ended up. Um, the, uh, the problem with um having like a system so to like guarantee you're going to go through every possible iteration for instance the the thing i found that's an issue is that you'll you can't make a gradient of difficulty like if you want it to be step a and then a little harder then a little harder and then step b if you want it to to progress in a nice curve you you kind of have to control it a little more um, there's a great book, um, like every drummer on the planet knows, called Stick Control, and it it is pretty systematic how like the first two pages are laid out on their you know make sure you get every possible sticking combination, and it's great. There's like nothing wrong with it at all. However, like number one, oh yeah, piece of cake. Number two, piece of cake. Three, four, five, and then when you get to number six, it's this inverted paradiddle thing, which is a sticking just a sticking pattern. It's suddenly like much harder than than what's going to come right after it. So in order to, to put it in a, a, a gradient that's going to be easy to difficult, you have to kind of reshuffle and reformat. And uh, that's what I chose to do with, with that one. And sometimes it like fails. It's like, oh, I think this one's a little harder than outside of the area we're in. And then it kind of jumps back in line. So yeah, it's tough to, to nail that for sure. Gotcha. Um... You know, so uh, with the metronome being like an integral part of the book, um, I I'm curious, first of all, is there like a metronome that you swear by? Um, are you sort of all inclusive in your appreciation of metronomes? Uh, like what, what's the, the coolest metronome that you're I, aware I of? I love that question. And I, I think I have a good answer for the coolest metronome ever. And I, I pulled it out for you. So this. Okay. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. Uh-uh. So this is called the Bellotti Trinome. It's like from the 70s-ish. And it is not digital. It is completely mechanical. It does plug in. And how it works is, I actually wrote a piece for this thing. And it turns out a lot of musicians do have them, but they unfortunately don't make it anymore. Um, so you turn the power on and you can kind of hear uh, it's, it's just rotating. It's not on right now but there's a gear rotating inside and there's three levers in the front and they're numbered one through eight. So if I click um, the first lever in the number one position, it'll start to ding. 
make sure this is by my microphone. And then if I click the second lever, we'll say in the number two position, it's gonna do two against one, right? Okay. So for every one bell, you're hearing two clicks, right? And then as you can imagine, if I click the three, we're gonna hear two against three and a big bell. And you can subtract them. I could subtract the bell. So I just put the number one lever down. And you can uh, put these anywhere you want. So I could put like, let's do, let's do seven against five against three. <laughs> so it's um, it's cool in that. I don't know, you, you kind of think like, well, yeah, of course a digital metronome can do that, but here's a mechanical one doing it also. And if you open up the back of it, you'll see, well, the there's just gears with, you know, seven even cutouts and six even slices and one slice per rotation. So they're all just rotating and they're measured evenly. And so you can end up getting all those interesting polyrhythms uh, j just from like natural uh, measurement, it's like completely analog, and it um, and it does that. So that's my that's my favorite metronome. <laughs> so when you do something like three against five against seven, um, uh, I mean, I assume that you can scale that tempo up. Is it referencing like the the sort of the whole cycle, um, like as your reference tempo, or uh, how does that work? Right, right. So you you can you can change the tempo. There's a tempo lever here. That's just changing like the master gear spinning, like how fast the master gear is rotating. Um, right. So what is it going against? That's that's what I think you're saying. The the number one gear is the bell sound. And yeah, you could do, like you said, three, five, seven if you want to. Um, and really your only only reference of like where all that is is when they all hit a beat together right I, th I think how it's useful is to leave the bell in the one position so like we could do a pretty clear um five against seven and really here every bell is the start of the pattern So there you can really tell where the cycle is like it really tells you exactly where the cycle is and the, the fun thing about it is you can like shift them while you're going, you know, you can start it and you can move one like as you go, like we can lock this into four and eight. And now it's even. And then we can throw the eight back down to seven, like as we're still listening. So kind of kind of interesting, you know, very cool. Um, nice. Uh, so that's the coolest one. Uh, is there anything else in your collection that's like particularly special? Probably not like that. I've got I've got lots of pendulum metronomes. I've written pieces for for pendulum metronomes. I actually recorded my own version of Ligeti's symphonic poem for hundred metronomes. I see. I saw that. <laughs> you saw that? Yeah. That was uh, that was just with you know one of my pendulum metronomes, and I, I literally recorded it unwinding. Uh, just right over there on my shelf a um, hundred times and uh, <laughs> then, then splice the whole thing together with a uh, hundred recordings. Um, so I have a few of those, but uh, that's, that's, that's really it. Otherwise I, I pull out my phone like everyone else. Gotcha. Um, now, I mean, I guess question A is a metronome, a percussion instrument and B is a drum machine, a percussion instrument. 
Right. Yeah. Or is that like a kind of particular definition that isn't worth exploring? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it kind of falls in that territory of like, is a piano a percussion instrument? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, you, stuff's being hit, but you don't expect a, a percussionist to be able to play a Chopin piano concerto. So it's like, yeah, like when we talk about percussion just out in the world and not in the field, sure, it's a, of course, it's technically a percussion instrument. I mean, a doctor listens for listens for um you know fluid in your lung by percussing on your chest and your back um but then when you get into the field it's like well it's the definition's probably not quite that cut and dry i mean just like we say random in the real world but every time i say random you know in front of my dad who's a mathematician he's just like well it's not really random <laughs> it's like yeah real random to mathematicians is not what it means to all of the rest of us you know so it's 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 fun that way you know uh, do you feel like your your dad being a mathematician has influenced your percussion? Uh, like I'm I'm somebody who like regularly tries to use stochastic processes in composition, and you know it's yeah. very bastardized. But like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I'm sure he has. I mean, I think he's influenced me in many more ways. You know, like a, just like a dad does. You know, uh, but yeah, I think. You know, my sister is also a mathematician, so I, I think growing up just around that and hearing it, um, yeah, I mean, it cer certainly has has influence for sure. I, I know, like, hearing what they talk about, how they talk about mathematics, um, it's really led me to believe uh, and maybe gets frustrated sometimes with how you know, musicians love talking about how mathematical music is. It's like, well, of course it is. Um, but we're really just talking about arithmetic in general, you know, like everything mm -hmm. I just showed you, it's like, yeah, it's just arithmetic. It's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not what's best about math, you know, and it, it's also, um, of course it's mathematical, but what isn't <laughs> you know? right. like everything kind of is, if it exists in the physical world, it's deeply mathematical, you know? So I, I think it's it's led me to that opinion, of course. But um, gotcha. yeah, but it's 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 a it's positive. I mean, it's only been like interesting and inspiring and helpful to think about. And I think if anything, it's like oh, hearing about this this concept uh, over here, um, it just inspires me to do my own thing, even if they're not even remotely related. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, seeing that metronome makes me think of sort of the pedantic question that I sent you. Um, that is totally like. I'm I'm being just pedantic and uh, selfish in asking this, but uh, so I, I came across like double dotted notes for the first time. Like I've I've seen them, you know, before in my life, but like it's never really been so relevant or like uh, commonly used. I've had to like internalize or retain what it means, mm -hmm. and so um, I basically I was thinking how dotted durations, you know, being essentially like fifty percent longer. It's akin to making you know a, a quarter note into a, a quarter note triplet where it's like it's fifty percent faster. It's not fifty percent shorter, but fifty percent faster. So there's mm -hmm. like this reflected quality. So like if you were to reflect those sort of like you know five like division of five or division of seven things like the metronome, but so it's a multiple. Um, it's as if the double dotted is kind of ref like a reflection of the seven, the way the dotted is a reflection of the three. So why don't we have anything like that for five? And I ask this because I feel like it's literally a huge opportunity missed in terms of notational utility. Uh, like if you yeah, have a measure of five, eight, how do you fill it with one uh, instance? Um, 
Let's see. It's funny you said five because it, it made me immediately think of, have you seen George Crumb dotted notes, double dots? Uh-uh. So George Crumb has, uh, like, imagine a, a quarter note in, in five, uh, let's say we're in 516, and there's a dot on the, the usual side, like there's a dot on the side in front of the note, and then there's also a dot behind it. And okay. yeah, so if you Google Crumb double dotted note or, you know, George Crumb dots, you'll find these durations. And all it means is, um, let's see, so a, 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 a crumb dotted quarter note would be five sixteenth notes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That solves my and problem. It, what, what's that? <laughs> that solves my problem, even though uh, it, I guess uh, I can't apply it in various notation programs necessarily. But yeah, I think you just have to. Well, and that's the interesting thing about notation. I do really like notation. Like, no, I'm really, I love like making graphic notation and like trying to find ways to draw things on the computer and, and trying to draw them like in finale. Like, I find that just kind of interesting and a challenge. And um, and I'm still a finale user and I, my friends like to tease me for it and I think they're right to do so, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it is, it is really fascinating. And that's the, that's the cool thing I think about notation is like you, you, there is probably a way to do anything, you know, you might not get Sibelius or finale or Dorico to like, like automatically do it, but if you can draw it, it exists. Mm. You know, and and I and I think what you were talking about with your questions, like, yeah, you could add a dot to a fivelet. Um, and I know, like, when I have cut and paste um, like fivelets around, you will get these. And if you cut them like in the middle of a bar or over a bar line, the software will like generate this really, you know, very very crazy rhythm that you would never actually want to look at. But it tells you like, okay, it's like, it's possible in there, you know, like it, it's trying to do it, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and it's, 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 it can actually play it back. Right. But it might not look right, you know, or like in the case of the crumb dots, like, Hey, you can make it look right, but it, it doesn't know what that actually means. It can't play that back. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's just a testament to like our notation system is I think pretty cool, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I do appreciate it, but I guess, uh, yeah, it just, I wish that I could more easily do the, the fives, um, and so when I realized that there was a triple dotted note and that's, mm -hmm. you know, like if you do a dotted quarter, it's three, eight. If you do a double dotted, it's like seven, 16. And then triple dotted would be 1532, right? Trip. I guess so. I'd have to, I'd have to pull out paper to be absolutely sure. <laughs> but yeah, I'm you just, just don't like, see it. You just I see feel it. Like so you go through primes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think so often, I mean, just cause they're not, they're just not common, you know, it's uh, probably like, instead of a crumb dot, people just tend to tie it to the next 16th. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have five sixteenths there, but I imagine, you know, George Crumb doing it all by hand. Uh, he's, he's probably just like, I need to find a way to save <laughs> how mm -hmm. to like, like save my wrist, you know? Totally. Um, let's see here. So, um, I guess like, um, you know, to continue with the metronome thing, um, like something I think about a lot is thresholds of sort of time. And I'm curious, if this means anything to you. Um, so like, you know, one thing is like, why don't metronomes generally speaking have below 10 beats per minute as a tempo? Um, is this something that you think is like weird or, I mean, um, like some of the best practice I've ever done is like the slowest possible pulse and then learning how to internalize that. Um, so I'm just curious where your mind goes with that. 
Yeah, I, I I really wish they would go slow. And yeah, sometimes I'm I'm like you know down downloaded this metronome app and I trade it for another because like hey this one goes down to thirty instead of forty. You know forty is like the usual. And oh cool, this one goes down to twenty. That that same teacher I mentioned, um, and, and I guess I've had more than one teacher do this, but you know that they'll start start a metronome with you and then they'll mute it and let you play on and then click it back in and see if you're if you're there. You know, and that's kind of been the way around that in the past, <laughs> but you kind of need a partner to do that for you. And now, of course, <laughs> the way around it is like, oh, yeah, we'll just put it in your your DAW or you have a, a digital metronome that'll probably do that or, or whatever. It's like it's pretty easy to do now. Um, I, I played a um, we used to do these readings at Harvard University. I, I'm a Boston Conservatory graduate. And sometimes they would hire a group of us to go do these composer readings. And this one composer I think he thought this was like really hot shit and funny and cool. And like, he wrote something like, you know, court, you know, half note equals three beats per minute, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was like, and, and so we were all just like, okay, so, all right. So, and then we all just like did the math and said like, okay, so we're going to call it 32nd note. And that's how we'll like stay together, you know? And then he was kind of like, oh, well, lame, you know, like I wanted you guys to be like pissed off and, like well yeah no we that was inconvenient but like we can't we can't perceive that like we just can't perceive anything that slow to to where it's useful so i guess i only can assume the the um the answer is like yeah beyond a certain point we we don't um we, we kind of stop being able to predict when the next note will come mm -hmm. you know and i swear i saw some you know one of those really popular music youtube channels that they went through and explained why metronomes like they have a 72 but they don't have a, a, a 75 you know like mm -hmm. there is some reason and, and at the same time actually one of my teachers um i remember i wrote a piece and i had one of those weird metronome markings on it like 73 or something that isn't on a metronome and my teacher sam solomon at the time he said uh, i remember him saying like yeah why don't you do like 72 or 69 or, or something that is one of these um times that's like um known to be felt you know, so there is some answer out there why why metronomes don't do that. And I, I guess there's something agreed upon us, like when we start to feel things different and like the metronome numbers get closer together as you get faster, <laughs> further apart as you're slower. Um, or maybe I have that reversed. But I, yeah, I tr truly don't know why. But I, I agree it would be nice. Like, hey, more metronomes that go slower, please. That'd be cool. When you say known to be felt, um, do you mean kind of like the difference between say 72 like that would be something that's known to be felt versus like 71.95 or something like that right yeah exactly and i think i have an old metronome yeah let's see so like yeah on this dial like it does have is like my metronome from when i was a kid like an eight volt battery metronome so yeah it goes 40 42 44 let's see it actually it goes in increments of two okay so it goes into increments of two until 60 and then it goes to 63, 66, 69, 72, and then it goes by three. And then once we get to 72, it goes by four, 72, 76, 80. Uh, <laughs> let's see. And then, uh, and then it moves to six. So I said it backwards. As you get faster, they become wider because you're, you don't perceive those smaller differences as quickly. So once we get to 96, it goes 96 to 100. So now it's going by four. 100, 104, I'm guessing it's going to jump again. 
Yeah, so now we get to 120 and it skips at 6. Huh. Interesting. Uh, yeah, this is news to me too. I've, I have <laughs> never <laughs> bothered to notice this. Uh, once we get to 152, it goes to 8. This makes me think of those uh, the people who think that 440 hertz is like out of tune, even though it's like kind of arbitrary. And 432 is when like you have healing frequencies that nourish your soul and this type of thing. Wow. Um, I, know, uh, I saw a video from Adam Neely where he was saying uh, like any sort of tempo with a decimal point in it is, quote, trash. Uh, do you wow. think that's reasonable? Uh, I mean, sure, it's like maybe it's a little bit like. You know, it's like that Harvard guy being like a little bit provocative, but it can't be trash. I don't know, I don't know if it's trash. Um, I mean, I think like, like, let's say even if it wasn't um, perceptible, like, let's say, you know, nobody could really feel that difference. And maybe by that they mean it's trash. But I think there is some value to how you're making the performer interpret something. You know, it's like that old story of Stravinsky writing the opening of Ride of Spring for bassoon. And there's that bassoon solo that's like, you know, it's at the it's not at the best range of the bassoon. You know, it's like, I, I think, really high. And I mean, it fits, but it's hard. Like, it's the, that's not the bassoon's ideal, like, voice, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, supposedly the person who got got selected was like the second chair bassoonist or something like they weren't the best one and that's because they, they had more strain and more like difficulty pulling it out of themselves and that's what Stravinsky wanted um, this whole story may not be true or it may be something one of my teachers told me and then laughed at me later or something probably not but it's, it's I mean it sounds like totally plausible and you certainly do hear about composers like trying to do things so that it you know, it, it imbues a certain approach from the performer. So I can kind of imagine utility in that, you know, like if, if the, if the decimal was changing and you had to go from 60 to 62.5 back to 62, like, <laughs> and you had to do that every bar or something like there would be this really nervous energy, um, at least out of me. I mean, I know that would pull a nervous energy out of me that <laughs> like, you know, uh, as long as I was being genuine and like trying to do what the composer wanted. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if it's um, I would call any of that uh, trash. You know, it's probably just depends on what you do with it. That's interesting to like sort of compose in the like to say, I want to hear some struggle in this. I'm going to compose in the struggle. Um, mm -hmm. I guess this makes me think of uh, some people who will talk about being in the pocket and I feel like when they conceive of being in the pocket rhythmically, it's almost like they're saying that is unquantized and out of the grid and that is superior to being in the grid. And there's something about that that irks me because I'm like, we shouldn't strive to be inaccurate and then just feel good about ourselves. Um, I mean, like there's something to be said about, you know, like having some human inflection, but like, do you feel similarly or do you think that it's good to be off the grid? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, I, I guess there's a, a place and a time, you know, for, for all of it. I, I feel like it's um, what's really important, especially when you're with people, it's just like you got to be able to hang, you know, like we always called it that, like, can this mm -hmm. person just like gel? And when the, um, let's say singer, because they have the worst time in that ensemble, <laughs> let's say when they shift a little, like you can go with them, you know, 
and um or you don't like oddly like jump with them or jump back with them you like let time stretch and let them kind of weave in and out and and you're just able to hang and i think people i know i've experienced colleagues over the years like fellow students in particular i'm thinking of um you know back when they just wanted to be metronomically perfect and and some of them were you know like they're they're sitting there playing their drum pad these like really slow notes at, at 40 beats per minute <laughs> and you walk in you say like oh hey how's it going what are you working on oh yeah i'm just doing my um um i'm doing my joe morello table of time is what we call it <laughs> and and i just see them playing these slow notes and then they stop and i hear a metronome I'm like wow they were like really burying the metronome so much that i didn't even hear it like i didn't even notice there was a metronome on mm. which had a very different timbre than the drum pad they were playing like wow that's 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 really really good time but yet that same person maybe can't hang you know, in the, in an ensemble when someone else doesn't have perfect time you know so i don't know mm -hmm. it's like I, again i think there's a, a time where it's really convenient and a time where it's um you you probably want to be able to turn that off gotcha um i guess like in terms of the threshold thing this makes me think of like like you know, i mentioned that i try to avoid composing with any duration smaller than 100 milliseconds um and like you know similarly if you're playing at three beats per minute that's essentially saying there's a pulse every 20 seconds. Um, mm -hmm. So do you like, is that part of how you think when you like, when one shifts between thinking about something as a rate of sort of like a relative rate to a duration that's absolute? I don't, I don't know that I've ever, I, I don't know that I've ever put those kind of parameters on my myself. I, I think there's I, I guess, again, like time and a place comment um, mm -hmm. um, would apply, you know, um yeah yeah i don't know i don't know if i compose quite that uh that methodically i probably should <laughs> it would help to have more i mean usually when i do impose some kind of methodical thing it's it helps compose you know mm -hmm. um but um i i usually i usually don't i don't know you know uh but yet i i think it's really really interesting like i i i really liked the um uh, the algorithmic metal project you showed me I thought that was really <laughs> cool I don't know if that had that type of compositional technique in it but it, it definitely gave me that sense that there are like probably these like long overlapping uh you know sort of like a tool song like there's like oh yeah there's like a long cycle going on I mean, imagine yours are probably longer than tools <laughs> <laughs> um I I mean the main thing is I try to have the final product be an exact time so like uh with the thing I sent you, I'm, I was like, the whole album is going to be exactly 30 minutes what I do in that span of time. But it's going to be a crisp 30 minutes. That's um, cool. That's cool. Uh, so uh, in terms of like practicing just that type of stuff, um, you know, in the app percussion podcast, you mentioned, I think, I think it was you. I, I wasn't looking, but I think it was your voice. Um, uh, somebody said, like, uh, you know, as you get older, your body begins to hurt and like practice isn't as uh, enticing. And I feel like, I'm beginning to feel that way myself. And so I'm curious, um, is there like anything you do to be able to physically maintain your ability to practice and play, um, whether that's sort of like postural or just like, you know, uh, something like that? Like, how do you stay fit? It seems like the, um, um, it seems like the things they always told you to do, like warm up and like be, do like careful stretches and, you know, don't go a week without playing at all. And then like do a think you can do a six hour block, you know, like you, you need to like work yourself up to that. And 
I mean, what we're doing is athletic. You know, you would never see an athlete like cramming all their practice in before the game. Like, well, your mm -hmm. body would just break. Like, and our bodies don't develop like that. You know, you, you can't get your body um, working on a, a any time but its own. So it seems like as we get older, like all those precautions and warm-ups are just like more important, you know? And, and then they're maybe even more important um, not to just not only not hurt yourself, but just to like feel good playing. Gotcha. You know? So that, that's probably the only advice I could, I could give. Uh, I mean, do you do any like, you know, sort of non-musical exercise or anything to make sure that you are capable or? Uh, I used to just do regular exercise, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, lift weights. And I, I definitely think that's a good idea. Like I feel like playing is easier while I'm doing that stuff. So yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a good idea. You know, of course you want to do all that with the same kind of caution and care for your body. Cause yeah, again, you go in there and say like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna, I haven't worked out in months. So I'm just gonna go hit it for like three hours. Like, well, you probably gotta be really careful doing that, you know? Um, gotcha. But yeah, that, that definitely helps, I think. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of your technical timing book and you mentioned um, your shape lessons as well. I didn't realize that was a book yet, um, but those are very cool. And like, I, I'm honestly just too intimidated to even dive into that type of thing because I see them on your YouTube channel with the little bells. Mm -hmm. And part of me is like, he's got to be like doing some sort of fakery. This is like too much coordination for a, a lowly guitarist. Um, sure. How do you like, how do you break th through that sort of initial uh, difficulty of coordinating so many limbs so precisely? Because like, I guess like for me, I have to synchronize the left and right hand to do just one task mm -hmm. and you have two independent tasks going and maybe you're seeing it as uh, like a, combined task but um i'm just like how do you do that right uh well i think it's back to like how are you going to organize the um the, the challenge and and what i mentioned about like are you going to use a system of organization that's going to give you every possible variation and be like truly completely exhaustive or are you going to kind of play it by feel and try to make like a nice even gradient of from easy to difficult happening. And I, I, I think that was even more important with this book than it was with technical timing. So yeah, this one, I definitely had to play by ear and really try to feel out. I think this should come first, then I think it should go here. And then I, then I probably wanna go here. And then I thought like, no, that's too big of a gap. We need to fill that gap with some, with some easier ones. And um, it, yeah, it felt like a really big organizational shuffle. So I, so I think like, you know, a, a good practice method is um, like, like, let's say you're trying to um, do like a, um, what would be a good one, like a, um, a, a triangle in one hand and a square in another. And that's a pretty, that's pretty advanced. Like that's, that's pretty up there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think the place where you're making it one task in your, um, in your body is, is just in your head. Like, cause I'm, I'm looking at myself right here on the zoom uh, um, my, my camera and I can just like, okay, like th there I'm drawing a triangle and here I'm drawing a square and I'm just going to try to keep track of the visual aid. And of course, when you feel your, you, your hand doing one thing that you don't want it to do, you just have to like, like with any kind of practice, like, okay, I'm just going to like slow down. I'm going to take rhythm completely out of it and I'm going to start together and I'm going to go to the next position. And then when I'm ready, <laughs> I'm going to go to the next position 
And then I'm going to think about where it's going next. My left hand has to go this way. My right hand has to go straight up. And then I'm going to do those together. And then I'm going to do the next one and the next one and the next one. And just like take time completely out of the equation and go at your own pace and do it like completely arrhythmically. And um, that, that seems to work. That's a uh, daunting, honestly. Um, uh, I mean, so with a lot of that stuff, it seems like the different shapes have sort of like different rhythms that then don't line up. So, I mean, like, or am I making that up where it's like, you know, maybe, maybe it's like quarter note, quarter note, quarter note. And then over here, it's like, it's going to be something else altogether. Maybe it's like down to eighth note specificity. Right, right. Yeah. So like, yeah, like they're, they're both doing like, like say quarters, but then one of them has an eighth note. So it, it makes the pattern, you know, shift off and you have to do one pattern together with the beats landing exactly together and then one exactly with off beats and then it will recycle and, and it'll meet itself again. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely tricky. And, and one thing I really had to balance with the book is not making those rhythms too complicated because I, I kind of thought like, well, as, as soon as you make it too hard, the, you can't really use the visual aid anymore you have to like suddenly pull out your pen and paper and like really figure out what you're doing. And I, di I didn't want it to exceed that, you know, cause like mm -hmm. you could certainly invent that for yourself and those if you wanted to, but I, I wanted it to stay practical within the shapes you saw in front of you. And, and I think where it really helps for percussionists is, you know, you, you may be being asked to do this really complicated rhythm but really you're just cramming like this shape inside of this other shape within a beat. You know, um, and, and, and really the idea came from um, there's these really tricky, a, a couple really tricky rhythms in this multi-percussion solo that we all have to learn by Zanakis. And and like and every percussionist listening knows I'm talking about rebounds uh, A and uh, like it, it's uh, something that was really kind of helpful for me as a student is like, wait a minute, I kind of just have to do this pattern in this hand, I have to do that pattern, which is, a, is at a different rate, but I just need to like make sure they end together. <laughs> you know, So it's like, this one's kind of a star shape and that one's kind of a circle and they finish together. <laughs> and that like made it so much easier. It's like, oh yeah, you just kind of think of the shape and try to keep steady time in each hand. And then you don't have to count like a crazy polyrhythm because it's, it's kind of too fast to sing. Mm-hmm you know, it's too fast to sing in your head. Like you can't do one of those little phrases that helps you feel like five against three or whatever. It's like too quick for one of those to be helpful. So um, I, I found this like shape idea to be helpful. And, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly nothing anyone ever asked for. And it's probably like, there's probably more of it than anyone really needs to ever apply. But I just thought it was interesting, you know, and I thought it was fun living in that space and like practicing that. Do you ever, I mean, like, uh, it seems like that type of thing would be a lot easier to, you know, be able to parse and digest if you like actually sort of rendered the notation of what it would look like without it being in shape format. Do you ever do that or does that defeat the purpose in some way? Yeah, I actually started the first version of it was all notated out. And so like, you know, you'd have like this alternating pattern on two, two drums and then another one like going like at a different rate over another two drums. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I really abandoned that and maybe, maybe it'll come back for, for something else. Um, but yeah, no, I, I can really see like utility in, in both of them, you know, like the notated version would be really 
really useful. I think the pro one of the problems was that some of the exercises just turned out to be really, really long. <laughs> like they turned <laughs> covered pages, you know, it's like, hmm, for this, for this one to really unwind, it's, um, it's, it's kind of starts to feel wasteful. It's like, oh, let's compact that into this one, this one little thing. I feel like you'd be really good at Simon, you know, that kid's game. <laughs> <Yeah>. the... <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. Yep. I think I, I actually picked that up fairly recently. Uh, <laughs> um, um, in a Walmart for uh, thinking about my my four year old, you know, like oh, I wonder if you play Simon. I think it's a little too advanced <laughs> right now. But I was like, oh, I'm actually not very good at this. <laughs> I need to pra practice this more. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, um, and this is another sort of like directed at just enriching myself. Um, I'm curious if you have any sort of guidance or advice for prospective grad students, or like any sort of like big picture questions to help guide. Uh, a prospective grad student in terms of like making sure that their education would be fruitful and you know that type of thing yeah um it's so clear um it, it, to, i'll say us you know, you know teachers because I, I think most all my colleagues would agree with me like it's so clear you see a certain student and you just go like okay they're going to be all right um because you can just tell they have that like fever and that drive and, and you know, like, gosh, even if I, whether they study with me or not, it doesn't matter. They're going to be fine. They're going to be just fine. And I think another way to say that is like, Hey, you're going to get as much out of it as you put in. And I, I think there's a lot of practical decision-making you need to do. Like you want to hopefully have a, um, you know, predict you're going to have a good relationship with that teacher. So you've talked to them, you study with them, maybe you met up with them at a, a festival or a clinic or something, and you, you got a sense of their teaching method. And, and, and you can only do your best with that. I mean, I, I've heard of a lot of students that like doesn't work out and they go like, man, I have like one excellent lesson with this person, but having a, um, uh, you know, a five-year doctoral relationship with them, uh, man, I mean, anyone can give one good lesson, you know, it's hard. I think what's really hard is, you know, four years of really good lessons. That's a very different kind of art, I think, and a, and a mm -hmm. really kind of different skill set. And there's really not many good ways to assess that. It's just, uh, hey, keep doing as much research as you can and keep looking into the people and, and seeing, you know, make your best guess that you, you think they'd be a really good fit. And then also look at their students, see, if their students are doing the type of thing you want to do and um, and talk to their students. I mean, most people you reach out to say like, hey, I heard you studied with so-and-so, um, you know, can you can you tell me what that was like for you? Um, they'll be happy to tell you. you know, they'll, be, they'll be happy to tell you all about their experience and they'll level with you. And I try all the time when students are, whether they're graduate or undergraduate, I say like, gosh, talk to the students. They'll, they'll level with you. You know, they'll they'll tell you what it's really like. And, and the truth is like, I don't want you to come study with me if you don't absolutely want to, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I think I would much rather you just go somewhere where you, you're going to be happy and it's going to be a good fit and you're going to get more, more out of it. And I guess the last thing I'll say is um, kind of along the lines of what I first said, where, uh, you know, I think we can kind of look at students and say they're going to be all right, <laughs> or, well, they might be all right, we don't know. It, it's, um, if you're working really hard, and, and you are really, really like doing your stuff and practicing, and you, and you do have that fever and that hunger, or uh, the, the grit, as Angela Duckworth explains it, <laughs> people who are successful, 
um, <clears throat> um, a, a, most people don't have it. And I, I think a lot of times we look at like our job at prospects and how competitive it is out there. And, and we, we really go like, oh man, I, I just, the odds are I won't get a job. And I, I think it's actually not true if you're one of those people. Gotcha. Um, like if you're one of those people who are really, really going for it, you're, you're probably going to be all right. But the trick is to, to not stop. You know, you have to persist and you have to keep going. And you, you can't just say like, well, I've been doing this for a whole year and I didn't get anything. So screw it. It's like, yeah, it's not enough. It'll take longer than that, you know. Um, any advice on like finding um, a professor that you think would be a good mentor or just being, is that just being aware of sort of the, the academic scene and uh, sort of just going with your gut? I think nowadays, I mean, I, I think of everyone who, like if I had to go back and study with someone, I think like, yeah, everyone I would be interested in studying with, I could probably find like one of these interviews. You know, there's so much material out there like that now. Mm -hmm. Um I, I would I would um, not limit it to that, but s certainly start there. Like, gosh, I mean, it's that it's that old question. Like, hey, you know, have you Googled that one? <laughs> Try Google, <laughs> see where Google takes you. It, it takes you a lot of places <laughs> now, you know. And and of course, I, I think there are teachers who, you know, they their musical career kind of missed the internet wave because they're a little older. Um, but I mean, they are. You know, if you're in the scene and, and you know people, you probably have heard of them. You know, you've probably known them. And one of my teachers, Nancy Zeltzman, um, she is certainly has a, has a much more digital presence um, than she did, say, 10 years ago. But, you know, everyone knows who she is. If you want to find out about her, you, you certainly can. And, you know, Google might not take you to her exact, uh, you know, uh, her interview, but it'll take you to something someone wrote about her. Or it'll take you to something that, uh, you know, someone has said with her or something, you know? Gotcha. Um, my, my headphones have warned me that despite charging them thoroughly, uh, they're starting to crap out. Um, so I guess we should start winding this up so I don't, sure. uh, <laughs> run out of, uh, you know, being able to hear you, but, um, is, is there anything else that you want to talk about or, uh, plug? I mean, your podcast is the Apricussion podcast, which is very cool, oh, a very extensive list of episodes. Um, uh, you have a great YouTube channel. Um, anything else that's in the works? I think that's great. No, thanks. I, I mean, this is really great. And like, it's really, thanks for having me on. And um, I'm, I, like I said, when we started, I'm gonna keep listening. It's cool. Like you've already introduced me to like a bunch of really hip composers that I didn't know. And um, yeah, thanks. Thanks a ton uh, for the, for the invite. Yeah, man. Um, it's been really fun talking to you and I'm, I feel uh, you know, very glad that I got you on here. So um, we'll stay in touch and uh, yeah, talk to you in the future. Cool. Okay. Thanks, John. Thanks everybody. Adios.